1 Peter 5. I'll give you a moment. After I read this, I invite you to, to uh, just receive the blessing of God's word and thank God for it. I'll say something like, this is God's word. If you agree with me and are thankful, just join me to say thanks be to God. 1 Peter 5, 1 to 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is uh, going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. If you pay close attention when you're reading the Bible, you'll notice that shepherds appear everywhere. Not just at the Christmas story, but really close to the beginning. There are shepherds all the time. And if you also pay close attention, you'll find that this role of shepherding almost mirrors the development of the storyline of the Bible. Let me just explain briefly. I'm helped by a book that's called Shepherds After My Own Heart. In that book, the author shows how God himself is a shepherd of his people. And his shepherding work shows up first, most clearly, in the Exodus. Right? So like a shepherd, God protects and leads his people out of Egypt, through the wilderness, and to the promised land. And his shepherding work is embodied by the shepherd-turned-prophet Moses. Now, once his people are settled in the promised land, God's shepherding work continues. And it's embodied eventually in the, in the shepherd-turned-king, David. Now, as the Bible goes on, the descendants of Moses and the descendants of David fail to take up that same shepherding mantle. So in places like Ezekiel chapter 34, God promises that he will once again shepherd his people himself. So we keep going in the the scriptures and soon enough we find that Jesus appears, God's own son. And what does he call himself? The good shepherd. Jesus proves to be the fulfillment of both Moses and David. He is the shepherd king who leads his people into a second exodus. Out of slavery from sin, through the wilderness of this life, and to the new promised land of heaven. Jesus is leading his flock right now. But that might leave you asking the same question I was wondering— How is Jesus leading his flock right now? Because we're not in heaven yet, and I don't know if you've noticed, but Jesus isn't physically here. So how is Jesus leading his people, his flock? Well, we have his words, we have his spirit, but we also have pastors. And like I said earlier in kids' time, that word pastor comes just from the Latin word for shepherd. So Jesus, the chief shepherd, cares for his flock through what's been called under-shepherds. Pastors shepherd Christ's flock under him. And they do so following his word and in the power of his spirit. And this is largely what Peter's talking about today in this passage of scripture. And I think if we're gonna summarize 1 Peter 5, 1 to 5, we can put it something like this in one main point. It's printed on the back of your bulletin if you wanna take a look. 
The good shepherd intends to care for his flock through the ministry of under shepherds. So when those in Christ's church humbly acknowledge their ongoing need, they will give and receive the care that Christ provides. Well, as we're looking at 1 Peter 5, 1 to 5, if you've ever wondered, what do pastors actually do? Do they really just work one day a week? I've been asked that before. The short answer to that is no. (laughs) I don't just work one day a week. But today, you get to hear at least one part of our job description. Remember that 1 Peter 5, 1 to 5, though, it's not just a letter written to pastors. It's a letter written to an entire group of Christians. So why would Peter, writing to an entire group of Christians, take time to focus just on the pastors? Well, this is a good question. Remember what this group of Christians is going through. I think that might help us a little bit. Over and over again, Peter has pointed out that suffering has come upon these Christians. He's written things like that these Christians are being maligned, they're being slandered, they're being reviled. He says that these Christians are like spiritual exiles living in a land that is increasingly hostile toward them. Even just last week, we saw in chapter 4, verse 12, that the fiery trial will come upon these Christians. So why single out leaders in the church with all of this suffering going on? Well, likely for a couple of reasons. Well, first, because leaders would probably feel the pressure and the heat of persecution first before anyone else. Also, likely because in a time of suffering, the example and guidance from leaders is especially crucial. Finally, if we just look at chapter 4, verse 17, if that verse is true, that judgment has begun in the household of God, and that means that God is purifying his people through trials that he allows in their lives, well, that purification has to begin with leaders of the church. But even if you are tracking with me so far, even if you can see why Peter would single out leaders, if you can catch his rationale, you might be wondering something that I would wonder if I were you sitting in a pew out there. I would be asking, okay, Steve, how is a passage about pastors relevant to me? What does this have anything to do with me? Well, I think we're going to see more ways as we go on. But for now, when Peter writes this, he assumes that all the Christians he's writing to belong to a church. And if that's the case, then he assumes that all the Christians he's writing to have pastors. So in sort of a roundabout bank shot kind of way, these instructions are actually meant for your good. These instructions to pastors are for the good of those in the church. That's God's intention. So Christian, would you read 1 Peter 5, 1 to 5, as these instructions to pastors as one way God intends for you to be known, to be cared for, and to be guarded. So even even before we dive into the meat of this passage, I, I just want to ask you something. You're here, and I wonder, do you have pastors in your life? Do you have pastors in your life? I'm not just asking if you know pastors. I'm asking if you're known by pastors. If you are taught and cared for and guided and guarded by pastors. I know maybe some of you here might be in between churches and it's difficult to find a church. And there are in between periods of our Christian walk. But if that prolongs itself after a while, oh, my friend, I, I don't think you're following God's intention for your Christian walk. And I also think you're missing out on the good that he intends to give you. 
And it would be, if you don't have pastors in your life, let me just say, on behalf of our pastors here, that we would be honored to be the pastors in your life. Well, enough table settings. Let's start the main course. We'll walk through this passage in four stages. First, we'll see Peter's introduction. Next, we'll see his main exhortation. Just a heads up to you. If point two seems really long, it's designed that way. So, uh, fair warning. Uh, Third stage is a motivation for pastors. And fourth, some implications for the entire church. Uh, First stage, Peter's introduction. So just head back to verse one. He writes, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Now, what's going on here? Well, I think that before Peter tells elders what they, are should, what they should do, here he tells them why they should listen to him. As the youths would say, what Peter's doing here is that he is establishing his street cred. Now, Peter, you can imagine, he could have thrown his weight around to tell them why they should listen to him. He could have written, I exhort the elders among you as the great and estimable apostle Peter. These peasant elders, you must listen to me. No, he's already mentioned his apostleship at the beginning. Instead of reminding them how high he is above them, instead, Peter reminds them how much he is with them. He focuses, notice, on what he has in common with these elders. He shares with them a common experience. He is a fellow elder. Now, just a brief explanation. That word elder comes from the word presbyteros or presbyter. And this isn't someone, like we told the kids, who's old in the church. This is a position or an office in the church. And as you read the New Testament, you'll find it's an established practice that's to set up multiple elders in a single church. You see that in the book of Acts, in James, in First and Second Timothy, and Titus. If you read First Peter 5, 1 to 5, you'll notice that these elders are the same guys who are told to shepherd the church. That is, if shepherd is the same word for pastor, elders are also pastors. Also from this passage, elders are the same guys who give oversights to the church. So elders are also pastors, are also overseers. Overseers where we get the word bishop. Now, this is a long way for me to say that for Peter, the title of elder is interchangeable with the title of pastor and overseer. All refer to the same position. Now, why should the elders reading this listen to what Peter has to say to them? Well, because Peter isn't just an apostle, Peter is a fellow elder. You know, Peter is not a keyboard warrior. Have you heard of these guys? Have you heard people called that? A keyboard warrior is the guy who lives in his mom's basement and blasts the church while himself not being involved in the church. Peter is not one of those guys. Peter's not an armchair quarterback. I'm like that for the Browns. I tell all of the things that the Browns are doing wrong, but I'm not on the field myself playing the game. Peter is not a keyboard warrior or an armchair quarterback. He knows what the task of pastoring involves. He does it himself. I think this is a good principle for you and for me. That before you speak into someone's life, you should do what you can to understand their own experience. So why should these elders listen to Peter? Well, because he has a common experience with them, but also because he has a common need and a common hope. He is a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, Peter might be speaking literally there, but you might also remember that Peter sort of ditched Jesus when he was arrested. 
So when Peter mentions this, it could be Peter's way of saying that he is not a self-made man. That just like them, Peter finds himself first in Christ who suffered in his place. And just like them, Peter finds the certain hope of his future, not in himself, but in Christ and what he has secured and promised, the glorious, unfading inheritance of heaven. So these elders should listen to Peter because of what he has in common with them, a common experience, a common need, a common hope. And when Peter says this, I think he is practicing what he preaches. Did you notice that he writes to the elders who are among the church? Among the church, not above the church. So here's Peter writing to the elders as among the elders, not above them. He practices what he preaches. Even in his introduction, I think too, just before we move on, I think you could see Peter's instinct again. We've noticed this instinct throughout this letter. You remember it, that for Peter, always the indicative comes before the imperative. That truth comes before command. That what Christ has done comes before what we now do. That you first need to receive the grace of God before you can do the command of God. For Peter, he tells pastors, you need that too. You need to be shaped and fueled by God's grace and not just start with God's command. One pastor notices from 1 Peter 5 verse 1, he says, all of life is to be done by looking back to Christ's sufferings that justify and looking forward to Christ's return that glorifies. The indicative comes before the imperative. So there's Peter's introduction, why they should listen to him. But what does Peter actually tell the elders to do? Well, look at verses two and three. They contain his main exhortation, second stage. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your, under your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, what this amounts to here. It's two tasks and three ways to do them. Elders are to shepherd and exercise oversight, and they are to do these actions willingly, eagerly, and as examples. Now, what's involved in the task of shepherding? Just an experiment. Take a moment, picture in your mind a shepherd. What do you see? Maybe you have echoes of Psalm 23 running through your mind. You have the... Uh, green pastures and the still waters. Maybe you're like me. You think of a shepherd. You think of this old guy in Scotland who is leading his flock of sheep with his big walking stick and over the lush green hills. Picture a shepherd in your mind. And I bet while a lot of us might be picturing something a little bit different, you know what I'm sure we all have in common? Is that shepherds are around sheep. Mind-blowing. This has major effects, though, on how we do church, doesn't it? Now, this isn't original to me, but you might think of me, the lead pastor, as something like the CEO of, a, of a, the corporation. And you might think of the members of the church as something like the shareholders and the visitors of the church as potential customers and the elders as the board of trustees. That's how a lot of churches either explicitly or functionally operate. My friends, that's from business. That's not from the Bible. Peter says that elders are shepherds. 
This leads one pastor to this just basic insight that if elders are shepherds, then the elders should smell like sheep. They should be around sheep that much that they smell like them. They shouldn't be so removed from sheep. They should be among them. They should be involved in their lives, knowing what's going on, knowing how they're doing, caring for them, praying for them, guarding them, teaching them. They're shepherds. What is that task of shepherding involved? Don't just picture any shepherd. Think of the shepherd, Jesus. Jesus was always around people. We, what we read earlier from John 21, what did Jesus tell Peter? Here Jesus was post-resurrection. They're eating breakfast by the Sea of Galilee. And Peter, or Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? After Peter had denied him three times, Jesus asks him this three times. Peter repeatedly says, yes, Lord, I love you. Jesus says, oh, well, how are, you, how are you going to demonstrate this, Peter? You need to tend to my sheep. You need to feed my sheep. What does shepherding involve? Tending and feeding sheep. And not just feeding with physical food. What does Jesus say? That we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the uh, mouth of God. We feed with the words of God. Shepherding, the main task of shepherding is feeding the word of God. We see Jesus himself do that. And actually a surprising passage. You remember the feeding of the 5,000? You know that Jesus didn't just feed people fishes and loaves at that time, right? Mark 6, verse 34. He looks out at this crowd and he has compassion on them. Why? Because they are like sheep without a shepherd. So what does Jesus do next? Mark 6, 34. He teaches them. That's the main way he feeds them. Teaching and preaching the word are how we shepherd. That's the main way we do the task. Preaching is part, is a subset of pastoring. Let me explain what I mean in a different way. So a couple of months ago, you might remember, we did a pulpit swap with Parkside Church Westside. Uh, so I'm good friends with their pastor, Matt McAlvey. So he preached here. I preached over there. Uh, and the main way I prepared for it, I knew I would have to adjust, right? So I, I, I visited, I've been to their building before. I knew that their room is just different from ours. Their room's a little bit bigger. Uh, it's set up in a different way. I knew that their pulpit was different. Their microphone was different. I just prepared for all these physical adjustments. What I had underestimated when I actually started preaching is that I was preaching to a different group of people. <laughs> I look out at this group of people and I don't know anybody. <laughs> and no one knows me. <laughs> But this morning, I, I look out at this group of people, and I know probably I don't know, 90% of you. At least I, I don't know you exhaustively, but I know you kind of well. I know your joys and your struggles, kind of your personality. I know, and it's okay, I know the people who usually doze off in the middle of the sermon, and, and, and I, I don't have to be offended because that happens. Um, that's, that's, the, that's the sweet spot of, of preaching, right? It's, it's part of pastoring. You know me, and, and I know you. You see, I want you to understand something, that I'm not a preacher who just happens to go by the title of pastor. No, no, no. I am a pastor who preaches. That's the Lord's model in 1 Peter 5. So elders at West Creek, guys, we won't be good teachers and preachers unless we are first good pastors. That's how this is setting up. I've talked to some of you about this, but here's what this means for you. That that guy on the radio you listen to on WCRF, 
or that guy on Facebook Live, or that guy on, I don't know, TBN. Please don't watch that channel. Um, <laughs> that guy might be a really good preacher. That guy can't pastor you. You know that, right? Yeah. That guy can't pastor you. He, he, he can't know you, and you can't know him. Let me say, if, if you move around from church to church, I, I know it can be hard to find a church. But if you do that for a long time, you might be preached to. You can't be pastored. So what I'm saying is an elder's preaching is part of an elder's pastoring. This is what Peter is telling the elders to do. Shepherd the flock of God among you. What's the other task? Well, it's to exercise oversight. And what's involved with this? Exercising oversight. I think this falls under the umbrella of shepherding. This is one way to shepherd the flock of God among you is to exercise oversight. What does it look like to do this? Again, I think we could just remember the words in the example of the shepherd. This time I'm thinking of John chapter 10, where Jesus knows who are among his flock. He knows the ones who are in it. Now, I'm not saying we can know this perfectly, but this is one reason why we kind of take membership seriously is because we want to know the people who are charged to our care. John chapter 10, how does Jesus exercise oversight? Well, he lays down his life for the sheep. He protects them from danger. He protects them from wolves. He tracks down the ones who have strayed. He knows the whole and he knows individuals. If this is true that elders are to exercise oversight over the church, it changes how we do church. So example, I wonder uh, if you got to design our elders meetings, what would you put on our agenda? What should we talk about if it was up to you? What are the things we should talk about? Should we just talk about uh, the, like the, the toilet not working or something, is, or the, the finances of the church, how much money we're spending? Should we talk about projects we need to do and, and plans and processes? Are those the only things that the elders should talk about when they meet together? No. I, of course, we should talk about those things. Those are good and fine. But we exercise oversight over the flock, right? Over people, right? If if elders are charged to exercise oversight over the flock of Christ among us, then as one pastor puts it, we can't pay more attention to like the machine than we pay attention to the actual members. We can't pay more attention to programs than we pay attention to actual people. We can't pay more attention to the trellis than we pay attention to the vine growing on. So do you know what we spend a lot of time on when the elders meet together? We talk about the people here that we see God using and growing. We talk about the people here that we see struggling with suffering or sin. We talk about the people here who seem like they're on the fringe and need help. We talk about the people who are coming in or going out of the church. We talk about how the congregation as a whole reflects Christ and where we need growth. These are the tasks, shepherding, and oversight. Christ gives these tasks to elders because this is how he grows and protects and multiplies his sheep. Well, we said two tasks and three ways to do them. Just briefly, Peter sets up three contrasts. So look again at the end of verse two on into verse three. He says, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So here, what Peter is saying is that it's possible to serve as an elder or really in any ministry only out of obligation. It's possible to say something like, well, I guess no one else is doing it, so I I better do it then. 
It's possible to serve as an elder, Peter's saying, only as a means to an end. It's possible to want to be a pastor just to get a paycheck. It's possible to want to be a pastor just to get recognized. It's also possible to to serve as an elder and let the authority go to your head. It's possible to want to be a pastor because you like to boss people around. So an elder, if Peter puts it, an elder who serves under compulsion or for shameful gain or to boss people around, a guy like that would make for a bad pastor. On the other hand, it is possible by God's grace to do the task of pastoring for the glory of Christ's name and the good of Christ's people. It's possible by God's grace for an elder actually to have integrity, to display the gospel that he teaches and preaches. It's possible for a shepherd to shepherd like the good shepherd, to use your authority not to be served, but to serve. So this is what the elders do and how they are to do it. What motivates them to keep going? This is our next stage. After Peter's exhortation to elders, he gives motivation to elders. Look with me at verse four. He says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I want to hone in on that word or that title, chief shepherd, just for a minute. That title is actually unique to Peter. He's the only guy in the New Testament who uses it. And I think it's a small reminder, this title of chief shepherd is a small way to bring elders back down to earth. Right? They might be shepherds, but they are not the shepherd. Right? Have you ever had a shift supervisor at work who thinks that he runs the entire company? I worked at Chick-fil-A, and you, thought, you would have thought one of my shift supervisors were like Chewit Cathy himself. Like he owned Chick-fil-A. It was not true. Elders, do not be that guy. At best, we are middle managers, right? We are not the owner. And we are always among the church. Even as shepherds, we are still sheep. We are still part of Christ's flock. And remember what Peter says just a couple of lines earlier. He says, shepherd the flock of God. So I want to be clear about something, that this church, the church at West Creek, doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to Jonathan or to Bill or to Dan or to Jared. It doesn't belong to all of us guys together. It belongs to God. I think, Christians, you've got to be careful of how you use your language. You want to be intentional in the language that you use. Hear people say something like this, oh, like that's John MacArthur's church. That's John Piper's church. That's Alistair Begg's church. No, it's not. That's the church they pastor, but it's not their church. This might be the church where you're a member, but it's not your church. It's Christ's church. Listen to Paul in Acts 20, verse 28. He tells the elders in Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. How dare we call this our church? Christ bled for it to purchase it. Over all this talk of under shepherds, I I just want to hone in for a moment on that title, chief shepherd. That should bring elders back down to earth. Brothers and sisters, this should bring your estimation and your expectations of your pastors back down to earth. Now, listen, pastors, I'll speak on behalf of them. We desire to be faithful to our task. We desire to be used by God to help you. 
However, this title for Jesus, Chief Shepherd, should remind you of something. That your pastors, listen, your pastors can't be Jesus for you. Your pastors can't be Jesus for you. It's easy for a pastor like me to develop something of a savior complex. I'm tempted. I, I, like, I, I, want, I like to be needed. I like to be wanted and, and, and leaned on. It's easy for me to, to develop some type of savior complex. It's easy for me and for Christians to develop expectations for pastors to know it all and to fix it all and to be available all the time. Even as you get help from your pastors, our goal ultimately isn't to get you to lean only on us. Our goal is to get you to lean on Jesus, the good shepherd. Listen, you know this. Pastors haven't lived the perfect life that we should have lived. Pastors haven't laid down their lives for our sin. Pastors don't, didn't rise again from the dead. Pastors don't reign with all authority in heaven on earth. They haven't done that. Jesus has. We trust and follow and lean on him. Pastors are meant to help you with that. And if you haven't trusted and followed and leaned on Christ, we beg you to do this today. Peter reminds pastors that Jesus will return, verse four. And when Jesus returns, this chief shepherd, faithful pastors can rest assured that they will receive what all Christians will receive, the unfading crown of glory. Now, what is this? I think Peter, like Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, alludes to the leafy athletic crowns that uh, victor, uh, the champions would receive at the trophy ceremony, right? These crowns made out of leaves. Maybe you've seen that at the Olympics or something. For as great of an achievement as that is, those leaves will eventually wither and fade. Here is an unfading crown, a reward that will never, ever, ever fade in other places like 2 Timothy 4 or James chapter 1, the crown of glory is the same way of saying you enter into eternal life. So this means that the greatest reward for pastors is in that they receive a blue check mark on Twitter. The greatest reward for pastors isn't that they are on the New York Times bestselling list. The greatest reward for pastors is not that they have thousands of congregants at their church. The greatest reward for pastors is seeing Christ face to face and being used by him for others to be there as well in that same place. That's what motivates us to keep going in a task that can often be grueling and discouraging. And you know, this motivation to see Christ face to face, the unfading crown of glory, that motivation isn't meant to be reserved only for pastors. It's meant to be for all Christians. You know, all of us right now have been entrusted with certain tasks and gifts and to use them excellently and faithfully but guys, if all you live for are achievements, if you only live for the next promotion, if you only live for the next possession, if you only live for the next recognition, my friend, all of those things will fade. I want you to filter your life with what will be here 10 million years from now. No one will care how much success you had. No one will care what kind of house you lived in. No one will care what kind of car you drove. No one will care about how many followers you have. And let me tell you something, you won't care about it either. So make your mantra now and forever. Be on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Well, let's just get our bearings. We're saying that within a letter to a group of Christians, Peter takes time to talk to elders. He explains why they should listen to him. 
He tells them what they are to do and how they are to do it. He also tells them one reason why they should do it. So if elders are to shepherd and oversee the church in light of the glorious return of the chief shepherd, what does that now mean for the church as a whole? This is our fourth stage implications. So look with me again at verse five. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, Peter presents two implications for the church. Be subject and be humble. Now, for the first one, he singles out those who are younger. And some, some suggest that those who are younger refer to the entire church. So that if elders are the ones who are more mature in their faith, the entire church could be deemed younger in the faith. Now, that's possible. Others take this as literally younger people. So theologian Don Carson writes this, that doubtless under times of stress brought by pressure, this is the situation that they were in, there would be no shortage of suggestions frequently advanced by the young, offering alternative courses for the church. Now, whether this is young in the faith or young in reality, the implication to be subject to elders is not reserved only for young people. Read Hebrews 13, 17. But the implication to be subject to elders might especially be relevant for young people who tend to be a little bit more headstrong. But you see, whether you're young or whether you're old, if elders have the tasks of shepherding and exercising oversight over the church, if that's our job, then what is the church's job? If we're to give that, the church is to receive it. If we're to give shepherding and oversight, you are to receive shepherding and oversight. So if, if Peter felt liberty to coin a word himself, a chief shepherd, I, I kind of feel liberty to coin a word for myself. I've used it before. It's a word I like to call shepherdable. If elders are supposed to shepherd, church member, ask yourself, am I shepherdable? Right, what does that mean? It, 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 am I gathered with the flock consistently? What does that mean? That means, am I difficult to track down? Some of y'all, man, like, I, I can't get a hold of you. <laughs> uh, do I engage with the teaching here? Do I interact meaningfully with the pastors and the other members? Will I tell people how I'm doing? Will I ask for help? Another way I've he heard this put, if you want to know if you are shepherdable, ask yourself this. Am I a fat Christian? Don't worry, that's an acronym, okay? Am I faithful, available, and teachable? Are you shepherdable? Are you faithful, available, and teachable? We are charged to give shepherding and oversight. Will you receive it? Now, if your elders beat you over the head with a verse like 1 Peter 5, verse 5, well, we would be violating 1 Peter 5, verse 3. We would be domineering. Let me nuance this in another way. Neither does being subject to elders mean that you are to listen to your elders no matter what they say or do. Now, read Galatians 1. If we go contrary to the gospel, pull the emergency brake. We are, neither does being subject to elders means that elders have carte blanche to micromanage your life. No, we are shepherds, not dictators. Neither does being subject to your elders mean that elders should not be held accountable. Read James 3 verse 1. Read 1 Timothy 5 verses 19 to 21. Elders should be held accountable if they violate their calling and persist in sin. But the thing is, by God's grace, when you look at 1 Peter 5 verse 5, 
the elders interact with that in such a way that we want to follow God's word. We want to reflect Christ's character so that 1 Peter 5 verse 5 is easy for you to do. We want to be trustworthy and earn your trust so that 1 Peter 5 verse 5 is easy for you to do. And we're so thankful to God. I'll speak again on behalf of the elders that, friends, you are a delight. You are a church that is delightful to pastor. We're so thankful for the ways that you encourage us. We're so thankful for the ways that you trust us. Now, two implications. We're rounding third winding home. Be subject and be humble. Notice here who Peter singles out in the call to humility. He says, all of you, not just those who are younger, all of you, young and old, pastor and member. Peter indicates the direction of our humility, right? What does he say? Toward one another. So relationships in the church can't function without humility, right? If everyone looks out only for themselves, we're going to splinter and crumble. If pastors are too proud to be among the people, they won't do their job and the people won't be cared for. If the people are too proud to receive care, well, then the church will crumble and the pastors can't do their job. Humility is essential for the church and the relationships in the church to function. The old commentator Matthew Henry says this, that humility is the great preserver of peace and order in all Christian churches. And pride is the great disturber of peace and order in all churches. You look at 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Ask, do you want the church at West Creek to continually be blessed by the grace of God? Do you want that? I want that then what should we do? Well, this can't happen. This blessing can't happen without humility because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Here's what I think this means, that if you have a proud heart, you close yourself off to receiving grace from God because you think you don't need it. This is why Peter says that everyone in the church should clothe themselves with humility. That's an interesting way to put it. That's an interesting instruction. Clothe yourselves with humility. It tells you that this isn't something that's natural to you and me. Here's Matthew Henry again. Let your minds, your behavior, your appearance, your entire life be adorned with humility. This is the most beautiful habit you can wear. Humility turns obedience to God from a drag to a delight. Here's where we might bring it full circle. Do you know the key to true humility? You might think that the key to true humility is just constantly degrading yourself. Oh, I'm just a sinner. I'm just an awful sinner. Well, it's true that the Bible tells you that you shouldn't think of yourself more highly than you ought. But C.S. Lewis puts it, ultimately, humility isn't so much thinking less of yourself because you could still think less of yourself and be obsessed with yourself. The real essence of humility is thinking of yourself less. We just kind of say that a lot here. And how do you get that true humility? How do you get freedom from being obsessed with yourself? Well, it's only when you have a security and a status and a satisfaction that is beyond yourself. So whether you're an elder or whether you're a member, whether you're young or old, It's possible for you no longer to need more power. It's possible for you no longer to need a better position. It's possible for you no longer to need higher prestige. It's possible for you. This happens when you realize that in Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, you really have all you need. It's his death that gives you life. 
It's his death that gives you status. It's his care that gives you peace. It's his promise that gives you hope. You think more of Christ and you can think of yourself less and you'll be freed. Freed to be used by him to love those around you and to care for his church. That is how the chief shepherd continues to care for his church as he is leading us home. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we praise you and confess with the song we sang earlier that wayward, perverse, and foolish, we often strayed, and yet in love you sought us. And on your shoulders you gently laid, and and home rejoicing brought us. We thank you. We pray for the elders of this church, that you would be glorified in them and through them to tend and feed this flock of God. We thank you, Lord, that we will not escape your sight, that you know each of us by name, and that you are still gathering in more to your fold. Help us to rest in you and to be used by you to care for your church. We pray in your name. Amen.